0: netcasts you love
1: from people you trust
0: this is twit bandwidth for security now is provided by aol radio at aol.com slash podcasting this is security now with steve gibson episode 154 for july 24th 2008 Listener feedback number 46. Security Now is brought to you by Astaro, makers of the Astaro Security Gateway on the web at www.astaro.com and by audible.com. For your free audiobook and a whole lot more, visit security securitynow and by Visa. With every purchase, Visa prevents, detects, And resolves online fraud. Safe. Secure. Visa. It's time for Security Now, episode 154. Our sesquicentennial plus four. I'm just going to keep saying that, Steve. (laughs) I just like saying that word. I think it's plus two now. Oh,
1: plus two. Even better. Zeroing in on it. Yeah. (laughs) Two episodes
0: to go. So uh, Steve Gibson is here. He is the the, uh, man at GRC.com, the Gibson Research Corporation, where you'll find such great things as shields up which has become world famous as a way to test your uh, firewall or your router when you first get it working, You go, everybody goes to ShieldsUp at GRC.com. He's also, of course, the creator of Spinrite, the world's finest disc recovery and maintenance utility. How are you today, Steve? I'm great. It's great to be
1: back with you for uh, approaching the end of our third year,
0: Leo. Wow. Questions and yep. answers uh, today. Yep. As always on the even-numbered shows, we've got some really good ones. Including I might add the sad and disturbing truth of the week and the creative writing award of the week. I love how you get these awards, Steve.
1: <laughs> well they they're they're deserved as we as our listeners will hear when we get to them. Oh, good. I uh, we do have uh, first some some security news before Not you do whole- that
0: before you do yeah. that, can i I do have some security news also, I want oh, to welcome okay. a new sponsor to the show. Oh cool. You've heard of perhaps Visa. Who hasn't? I,
1: I use them all the time. Yes. They're actually
0: the cards I have. Well, I've learned my lesson. That's the, that's what you use online when you buy online. Visa knows that when you go shopping online, you have better things to think about. Like, you know, should you get the uh, the uh, the router in gray or beige instead of, or a six, a 6 megapixel camera or 12, instead of fraud. That's one of the things you shouldn't have to worry about, and thanks to Visa, you don't have to. When you make a purchase with Visa, it's safe and secure they use real-time fraud monitoring we've we've talked about this before it's really kind of amazing if anything out of the ordinary happens in your purchasing it picks it up right away and, and given that there are i don't know how many millions of transactions going on a day it's pretty amazing it's like finding a needle in a haystack and yet this stuff is so sophisticated it can find it uh, i've received calls where people say did you buy you know the visa will call and say did you buy something in argentina i'll say no and they say no problem it's off the bill zero liability you are not liable for unauthorized purchases that's peace of mind that's why i use visa online you should too safe secure visa we thank them so much for their support of security now
1: well you know we've talked about like my main annoyance with paypal is that you they keep wanting to charge my my checking account and you want to use your credit card yeah. I mean, yeah. when the checking account is charged, that money is gone. And they say, oh, don't worry. We'll, we'll reimburse you. was like, uh huh. I know your track record about that. Yeah. So thanks anyway. I'd rather, you know, complain to my credit card company that I know will we'll have, you know, will we'll stand behind my interests.
0: Well, I think that, you know, that's something that happened early on in online commerce. And it was really vital because people were, I, I mean, I it never, I was comfortable buying online, but most people, I think, still are uncomfortable. And they really had to have that kind of feeling of, when we buy online, we're not really at risk here, and right. um, I think the credit card companies, Visa particularly, responded by—and thank goodness they did—by um, saying, "Well, you know, if you bought something and it's in it, you know, you, you get ripped off, we'll, we'll, we'll stand by it." And I think that that's made all the difference in online commerce. I think without that, you wouldn't nobody would be buying anything online. I wouldn't. I learned my lesson. And we'll, well, don't get me started. So, Steve, what's ha- what's happening in the uh, in the world of security this week?
1: we get got three interesting things. Um, first of all, uh, there are new updates to Firefox, uh, both version 2 and version 3. 2 went to 0.16. It seems that every time I talk about this, there's another you know subversion of Firefox 2. Uh, they, last time it was one, it was 0.15. Now they're at 0.16. So I wanted to let our users know that they want to check in with Firefox, those who are using it, I have to say, Leo, I'm very impressed with the people who use GRC. I don't know if this is a an overall trend, but but more than half of GRC's visitors are using Firefox over IE. I think we're we're like uh, almost sixty or seventy percent on that. Twit. Yeah, I'm. It's great. Yeah, it is. Um, you know, they're the Firefox browsers, especially version three. I'm very impressed with. They fixed some bugs that are still in version two, and that I think there's very little chance they're going to fix in version two because they're more architectural problems, not little, you know, cosmetic patchy things. So, you know, three, as soon as people are comfortable with the move to three, I never want to push anyone to move to a new major version of something. Um,
0: Although I just saw a, a very interesting study. Oh, where did I see it? That said, uh, what a surprisingly few people were using the most recent version of their browser. And I think you and I would both agree that that's a pretty important thing to do, is, is, is update. Yeah.
1: Well, for example, the reason these were both fixed was to fix that blended threat we talked about a few weeks ago that involves having both Safari and uh, IE or Firefox on the same system. Remember, remember that Safari by default downloads things to your desktop. And unfortunately, Windows searches for DLL files in a really brain-dead sequence, which involves your desktop. So it's possible for someone to cleverly, by, by, uh, by hoping that you've got Safari and a non-Safari browser both on your system at the same time, to get Safari to, to download something to your desktop, which then Windows will discover when you're using a non-Safari browser, and get it to run this code. So that's what was fixed. in That and a few other little uh, less significant things that was fixed in this version of, in these most recent uh, versions of Firefox. This study was from the Swiss, I found it now, Swiss Federal Institute of Security,
0: IBM, and Google. Um, and uh, 60%, 59% of people use up-to-date, fully patched web browsers. But that means there's 40% out there. Who are, who are running kind of vulnerable? I like IE seven though. I think IE seven is pretty secure.
1: Have you? Do you have an opinion on that? I know you've always been an IE user. I have, and I have to agree with you. I think that I mean it is my annoyance is that it takes Microsoft so long to to fix this stuff. I mean, it's years, yeah. years, years. I mean, and and I think the greatest comeuppance for them is that they have given. A, an alternative browser like Firefox such a huge window of opportunity to come in arguably with a much more secure solution than IE. I mean, it's Microsoft's own fault that Firefox has the, you know, that the the, the huge market share that it does. And you've got to know that Microsoft is not happy about that. You know, they fought like crazy to, to get IE to the position it, it, it is now over Netscape back in the day and you know, here it's because you know people are have left IE because of all the all the problems it's had for so long. It's just sh- shocking to me that it's taken Microsoft so long to to fix these things. But yes, it is substantially more safe. The fact that you get a you know you've got good built-in pop-up blocking. The fact that you get a notice when an active X control attempts to run. And so I mean, like many problems are now no longer problems under IE, but it's got such a bad reputation, which is now going to haunt it for the next who knows how long. That you know, They may never recover from that.
0: Well, yeah, it's true. And I think a lot of people, once, once they use Firefox, like the extensions so much, like the capabilities so much, they don't even go back to IE. So it's really, yeah. it really doesn't matter that IE is now safe. It's too late.
1: And Firefox is a, as I was just saying, Firefox version three and That's even great. two, but but three even more. It's a beautiful oh, solution. Yeah. Oh yeah, I agree. And
0: okay, things like so, things like uh, NoScript, uh, which really, ma- I know you love, uh, AdBlock. Some of the things that you could do in Firefox, you just can't do in any other browser. Really, make it a, I, a good choice. Right.
1: Um a a report uh, that came out on the net from a um, a security uh, monitoring organization had uh, something to say that I thought was rather humorous, not really good news. Um, there was a report on the changing structure of cybercrime organizations. And this report noted that there has been a huge fall in the price of compromised financial details <laughs> it's cheap now we're <laughs> we're having a fire and, sale <laughs> and guess why it's due to an overabundance yeah. of supply yeah oh there boy. is there is so there are so much now bank account details including pin and, and and so forth that the price has fallen because there's just so much of it available it used Ugh. to be that the bad guys would pay about a hundred dollars for bank for bank account information, including the pin number, is a drop now between ten and twenty dollars just because, you know, there's so much of it around. And the bad guys are now like, well, that's sort of more commodity. They're now looking for other sorts of information that they can get higher margins on. Because they they you know they would like something that's more valuable because bank account information, ah, that's just you know <laughs> not a big deal anymore. Anybody can get that. <laughs> that's amazing. Also uh, so also in the news um, and we may cover this more in more detail if necessary, um, but Bruce Schneier, um, the you know, well-known security researcher at Counterpain, uh, founder of Counterpane Security, worked with a bunch of students, and it's actually the students, he says, who did the heavy lifting. They demonstrated that systems which are not fully encrypted, that is, that do not have whole drive encryption, but which instead encrypt portions of the hard drive actually don't succeed in the plausible deniability, for example, which TrueCrypt attempts to offer. It's just the fact that OSs have not been designed to properly sanitize the debris. So things like, you know, Funky drive letters that are lingering in the registry and in various history lists, uh, lists and things. If if a forensic researcher acquired a machine for which, for example, had one of these, you know, one, one of the features of TrueCrypt, for example, is that you're able to create like a hidden partition in the unused space of an encrypted partition, and the idea being, oh, you you can say no, no, no. Here's the keys to my, you know, to to the partition that I've got encrypted and you have plausible deniability that there's actually another partition hidden behind that one well it turns out unfortunately and again this is sort of makes sense when you think about it accessing that hidden partition brings it into currency in the OS and there are enough little traces left behind in the OS that a good forensic researcher would be able to determine that uh-oh there was another partition there that now has disappeared and then i guess they twist your arm harder and make you give them the second set of secret keys mm-hmm. so uh just a little heads up again an enc- a fully encrypted partition because the entire thing is encrypted it doesn't have this vulnerability on the other hand you know the vulnerability that is created is a, is a feature that some users might want. It's worth noting that it's now been demonstrated that that plausible deniability it's broken. Interesting. Um, Also, I didn't intend to go into great detail and I still don't intend to go into great detail in another one of these heinous ISP sponsored third party spying outfits. We talked of course now for several weeks um, on our non-Q&A episodes and even in some of our Q&A episodes about the form system, P-H-O-R-M, one of the other ones we mentioned in the very first week of this was NebuAd. Well, some of the people in the GRC news groups mentioned that they have received updated terms and conditions from their ISPs notifying them that they're going to be using NebuAd. Mm. And and in, in um, reading through Posting submissions from our listeners in order to select the questions for today's Q&A, I ran across another couple Security Now listeners who wrote that when we talked about Nebuad, that kind of rang a bell in their memory. They went back and looked at some updated stuff that they, you know, fine print that had been sent to them. And sure enough, their ISPs were notifying them that they were going to be using Nebuad. So I did want to just mention the technology very briefly that Nebuad uses cuz it's way annoying. It does not perform the script free multi browser cookie dance that I described a couple weeks ago where where ISP where remote sites are being faked by the by this by the equipment hosted in the ISP's facility which intercepts your your attempt to access a remote server and instead bounces you to a NebuAd server and, and makes your browser dance around a few times using a redirection in order to basically salt everywhere you go with their own cookies. Instead, this does what Form was trying to do in the 06 and 07 pre-release testing with, with uh, British Telecom, BT. Um, it actually inserts script onto the pages you download it inserts javascript essentially what it does is it spoofs a final packet into the stream coming back from a web page when it sees the web page ending with a with a backslash html closure in 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 the html code it that triggers it to inject its own script reference at the end of the pages you download so it is actively modifying the pages you receive from websites you visit and that javascript in um includes a url to a to a site owned by Nebuad that that causes your script enabled browser to then go and fetch whatever scripting code they choose to be inserting into your browser page at that time. And of course, your browser then runs that script. And that's the way they succeed in planting cookies on your browser and enabling tracking. So it is, you know, really bad and annoying also. Uh, Does it in a different way, but essentially achieves the same thing. And they've got the same, you know, opt out mumbo jumbo. But, you know, here we have an instance where where ISPs are sending out fine print boilerplate that people are not reading, not giving people the opportunity to explicitly opt in, but rather requiring them to opt out if they don't want this kind of third party tracking going on.
0: They just keep they just keep trying, don't they, Steve? It's, uh, amazing. They it's a bad it's a
1: bad trend. <laughs> um and lastly i wanted to mention that in the since we last talked service pack 3 of windows uh xp service pack 3 switched from being a separate sort of called out notice if you've got um your system set for for downloading but notifying you for for since the release of service pack 3 there was like a like a a, a separate notice that was offering you Service Pack 3. And as many people who know, probably everyone who's been listening to the podcast, there have been lots of problems with Service Pack 3. Many people have no problems, which of course, why it's still out there. But there have been all kinds of instances of selective problems occurring in XP after the installation of Service Pack 3. Um, I had two different problems. My tech support guy, Greg, had a problem. I think I heard you mention that you had a problem with with a post I, have, I have
0: one machine. It just, it, it, uh, I mean, to its credit, it tries to install it,
1: can't install it, rolls back. I'll have no, to figure out it. why though, because it's going to keep doing that now. I guess. Well, that's why I'm bringing this up. Yeah. It turns out that that Greg, brought my tech support guy, brought this note, this issue to my attention, and I put into Google. Thank you, Google, hmm. service pack blocker tool or something uh-huh. like that. It turns out Microsoft themselves offer. A very small, simple, lightweight executable, uh, downloadable from their site. Just put in "service pack blocker tool" into Google or into Microsoft's own search. It'll, you'll, you'll. It's easily findable. What this does is simply set a bit in the registry. So you don't even really need the tool if you if you are like a registry hacker kind of person. But Part of this is a very small, little 10K. I don't think I've ever seen Microsoft do anything for 10K. <laughs> um, it, is,
0: it doesn't it's have probably a, a register. It's probably just a registry uh, uh, modification. It's just a, it's
1: just a, a little command line yeah. XE, yeah. Uh, wh- which basically puts a D word variable into the registry telling Windows Update not to update this service pack. So I wanted to let... Um, individuals know, also people who are responsible for, for like corporate updates or even small uh, small office groups, that it is possible, first of all, that the Service Pack 3 has switched into this mode, and if they feel, as I do, that, eh, I don't know, it's still not time for Service Pack 3, you can keep Windows from sneaking it in behind your back. We should point out
0: that anybody who does that, though, should be a security with and know uh, you know what to do to protect themselves against the patches as Service Pack three is adding, right? I mean, it's
1: yes. So far, the patches that have happened since have patched around Service Pack oh, okay, three, good. yes, um, and haven't required it. There is some question about whether this most recent DNS DNS patch might be requiring Service Pack three. Oh, did they did they put out a patch for that DNS DNS flaw? Yeah, Microsoft actually beat everyone else to it. It oh, was that's in right. the last Tuesday, yeah. Right, yeah. it was in the last round. Right. So, so, that, so that's been out, of course. That's our, that is our serious propeller head, really fun techie topic for next week is how DNS spoofing works.
0: There was an interesting um, post, I don't know if you saw it, on Slashdot, on the IT uh, part of Slashdot, uh, with a guy explaining, because you know, Dan Kaminsky hasn't really revealed the details of this DNS poisoning yep. exploit, but somebody apparently figured it out, and is, it's actually been published now, which means people will be using it now. Oh, absolutely.
1: Yeah. Um, so it'll be interesting to see. Um, and lastly, I've got a great fun uh, spinright story to share with our listeners. This is from, um, I think, a Security Now listener. I'm not sure. Uh, Steve Bollum, uh, he wrote just recently, says, I bought Spinrite 3 around three years ago and made a CD from it and then completely forgot about it. Just recently, I was composing music for a game. So he's a game music composer. And he said, and all of a sudden, my brand-new, non-networked, non-backed-up machine started to make some very strange, irregular noises from the hard drive. Fearing the worst, I grabbed my high-capacity portable drive and tried to back up all my files. Unfortunately, the hard drive then froze. Oh, boy. Ah." And when I tried to reboot, I could not then even get past the post-sequence, the so-called power-on self-test the BIOS does. I feared the worst, as it seemed to give all the indications of complete hardware failure, and was mentally preparing myself to write off six weeks of hard work. Then I remembered Spinrite, grabbed the CD, and set the BIOS to boot from it. Amazingly, Spinrite found the hard drive. And so with my heart in my mouth, I selected to recover the data. Six hours and many alarming graphs posted by, <laughs> from Spinrite later. you seen that Dynastat D- that I was going to say that's book.
0: Dynastat, yeah.
1: Yeah. He says, and many alarming graphs <laughs> later, it said it was done. I took out the Spinrite CD, pressed the reset, and waited. As if by magic, the PC booted. Wow. I logged on and found everything was as it should have been. I have since added another drive for resilience and will now periodically run Spinrite as preventative maintenance. This program truly is a lifesaver and probably the best money I've spent in a long time. Thanks for a great product. So thank you, Steve, for the great report. Isn't that nice? Uh,
0: we got a lot of questions for you, uh, Steve Gibson, in just a second. But before we do that, I want to mention our good friends at Astaro, the Astaro Security Gateway, they've sponsored this show now for, uh, I think it's almost two years. One of the longest running uh, relationships in, uh, in uh, podcast history. And we're so glad. Astaro makes this, the Astaro, Sec- I'm holding it. Those of you at home who can't see it, I'm holding it, the Astaro Security Gateway. And you can see it's just about the size of a regular router. Of course, made in a nice steel, tough case, rack-mountable, too. But let me tell you, this is more than a router. The Astaro Security Gateway combines the best-in-breed commercial and open-source software for protecting your network. We're talking intrusion protection. We're talking, of course, great firewall, but also complete VPN capabilities, including VPN over SSL. Built-in encryption and decryption using, using OpenPGP and S-MIME. You get three kinds of antivirus filters, two for the email, one for the web. You get complete web control, so you can control what your employees are doing online. All that from a little box. It's kind of an amazing thing. They call them a UTM, Unified Threat Management. I just call it Unified Internet Management, the Astaro Security Gateway. If you'd like to f- try a free one in your office today, you can do it. Just give them a ring. Call 877-4-ASTARO. the number four, Astaro. They'll get a demo unit out to you, and you can see what it can do for you. 877-4-ASTARO, the number four, Astaro, or visit them online, A S T a-R-O dot com, the Astaro Security Gateway. They also have a web gateway. And by the way, if you're a Cisco PIX user, contact them. They've got a special discount for you because they know that the PIX is being discontinued. And you know what? You'll be stepping up to the best in the business. Astaro. Call 877, the number 4, A-S-T-A-R-O. We thank Astaro so much for their support of security now. Steve, are you ready for some questions, Lottie? Aye, Captain. <laughs> We've got some good ones for you. Starting off with John R. Basquill at Penn State Harrisburg. He has all the details. He says, I was listening to some past episodes of Security Now recently when I heard a question from a Penn State student concerning Shields Up. Since I work for Penn State. Wow, now this is is getting the answer from the source here. I thought I'd try to clear things up a little bit here for you. Uh, He says, the student was concerned that the IP address on his computer was the same as the uh, IP address that Shields Up was showing, which means there must be no NAT being performed, right? Yep. Right, right. Well, during your answer, you said that they, Penn State, must have a big network where they can afford to give individual public IP addresses to the students in their dorms. You were absolutely correct, sir. When I first started working for Penn State, I was surprised by the large size of the address pool the university owns. Each student living in the dorms must register his or her MAC address with the university. A lot of universities do something like this. Yeah, obviously, they want to keep people off of their um, uh, network who aren't students, but it's a, it's a tricky thing to do. So here's, here's how they do it at Penn State. So they register their MAC address, which is locked to
1: a specific port, interestingly enough. Yep, so like there will be a, there'll be a data switch, which is intelligent, and you're able to say only allow this one. low level ethernet traffic right. from this mac address that's really good that yeah.
0: each mac address is assigned its own ip address via dhcp that's a public ip address so that's why the address on the computer is the same address shields up displays a little different than a router at home it doesn't give it doesn't use a private pool of addresses it's actually giving up the public address to each you've got a static ip address if you're at penn state uh, also, during your answer, you and Leo said that since no NAT is being performed to provide stateful incoming security, the university could have a firewall, which is blocking all inbound traffic. That is true. All data ports in the dorms are behind a firewall. You also indicated the setup as described by the student made you a little nervous because the student could put a NAT router in his or her room for additional protection or should put a NAT router. That's not true. He says the only device a student is allowed to connect to the network is that single personal computer. That makes sense, because the router have a different MAC address. They may not connect hubs, routers, print servers, terminal servers, or other network devices. There are other limitations the students must adhere to, including bandwidth limitations. The students are encouraged to read the housing connection agreement before signing it. Additionally, the students must watch a short video that details what they may and may not do while on the Penn State network any inappropriate or illegal activity is traced if circumstances dictate by the IP address that's why they use a unique IP address cuz it belongs to that individual student does that clear things up a little go Nittany lions <laughs> <laughs> that's great i mean i think most universities have to deal exactly with these problems and this sounds like a good solution
1: i think maybe part of the reason i don't know how internet savvy the the students are but if if they certainly like our own listener who originally wrote in with this question um, was asking if they realize that the IP they've got is static and assigned to them, then it seems to me they're going to tend to be more responsible if they don't think that they're, you know, hiding behind a NAT router, no one can trace them back behind the router. If they're doing things like, you know, uh, things that, that are in breach of the university's policy, for example, you know, the MPAA finds their IP address out, you know, sniffing around, downloading lots of movies and, and, you know, the MPAA wants to stump on them. It's like, okay, this IP address owned by Penn state uh, has been found to be downloading this content. Well, that's directly traceable back right. to a given student. So, you know, maybe the students understand that. Now it's certainly the case that, that, this is a pretty much locked down system. It's, it seems to me, well, I don't know, maybe a little overkill because this means, for example, that a student can't take their laptop from their dorm room to somebody else's dorm room. Right. And like both be online on that other person's connection. So, you know, it's like there's, I mean, I understand certainly universities are crazy for needing, I mean, crazy about uh, you know, student behavior on on the network. This really does create accountability, which I'm sure is good. But one of the things I'm sure John, who posted this, knows, and many of our listeners probably know, and that they're that, all saying right now in their heads, yes. And that is, you can certainly change right. the apparent MAC address of a router to emulate the MAC, ad- the MAC address of a, a PC. In fact, that's a feature that that. All all NAT routers now offer specifically for this reason. Some ISPs lock their lock their subscribers' MAC address to a given machine because they they in the old days they were sort of fighting this whole idea of NAT routers and like well no we want you to buy five IPs from us if if that's what if you're going to be using five machines well good luck I mean from a from a networking standpoint a PC with a firewall. Is indistinguishable from a Mac uh, from a NAT router, and so all you would have to do—and I know there's Penn State students who are aware of this—is just copy the MAC address from their PC into a router, plug it in. The university can be none the wiser. Now, the university, I'm sure, knows um, one of the things this certainly allows is for for again enforced accountability. It is probably the case. That you could detect if you really were concerned about it, whether a a, a router was at the endpoint or a PC, because there's going to be different behavior outward-facing from a router than a PC. But again, it's that would be I would require some you know very sophisticated equipment. And I think mostly what what the the idea is um, a student would have to be clearly violating the agreement that they that they signed as part of getting access or agreed to as part of getting access to the university network, if they were doing this. And again, it certainly enforces accountability, but you know, we never really talked about DHCP as I'm, as I'm listening to this and he's talking about, you know, assigning specific um, IPs by max DHCP is a far more powerful protocol than most people are aware. I think we're gonna have to talk about that sometime soon.
0: Oh, I'd love to, cause we all use yeah. it. Uh, but I think we use it in a very kind of simple way.
1: Yeah, I mean it. It does actually c- had, can do many cool things more than just giving you a, an IP address. Oh, interesting. Oh, I'd love to know more about that. That's yeah. great.
0: Yeah, I wonder how many kids. the First thing they do, they check into the the uh, dorm room, put a put a Wi-Fi access point in there, spoof the MAC address, and uh, provide uh, bandwidth for the whole uh, dorm. Like, <laughs> and, you
1: know, and and I guess my feeling is that that. Really, the and I'm not I'm not I'm saying nothing negative about Penn State. I mean, we've got John, a security now listener. I don't want to upset him. But what they've done seems like so onerous, I mean, so restrictive that you're almost forcing students to 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 break out of that jail because you're not letting them, for example, right. have their friends over and all plug their laptops in in order to do their, you know, get together and do a little, you know, homework. Well, and
0: as you know, the more onerous uh, you get, the more likely somebody's going to be uh, figuring out ways around it. Uh, exactly. Yeah. Uh, let's get to another question. Christos Kirst in Huntington Beach, California, wants the stat of his net. Okay. Okay. Steve, first of first off, I want to say I own Spinrite. I've talked to at least four people into buying it as well. It's amazing. Also, your podcast keeps my drive interesting. Always great info. That's making my network more and more secure. My question is this: When I run the DOS command, actually you could run it on any machine, netstat -an on my Windows 2000 server, I get the normal info. But then, what gets me worried is this UDP thing. It shows UDP 0.0.0.0 colon six five five one eight star dot star. Should I be worried about this? What
1: is it? <laughs> well, um. Okay, what that says. Uh, first of all, netstat is a is a command universally available from the early days of Unix machines, which were the first machines to to be doing networking like this. It'll, it's a it's a command, very useful command that that I often run in a DOS box. It is a it is a DOS style command. So, you know, command line style command. Netstat AN actually happens to be my favorite uh, prompts, my, my favorite um, <laughs> what uh, it command do? line switches also. It gives you a, just exactly the display that you want. It shows you um, all of the various ports which have something going on. That is, they're, they're open and listening. You've got established connections. They they may have just have been shut down, in which case they're in time wait mode. Um, you can really sort of it's a snapshot into the networking status of your machine. Now, this one command line or this one example that 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 um, that Christo cited, where it says UDP zero 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 colon six five five one eight, what that says is that something some process in the system. Has opened and is listening for incoming traffic on that very high-numbered port. Ports only goes up, go up to six five five three five. So this is, you know, and he's at one eight, which is just up, just below the upper ceiling. So this is not something that just said, "Give me any UDP port." It it apparently said, "I want one kind of way up, out of the way." maybe sort of trying to be obscure so mm. so especially on a on a server machine which which tend to be rather lean and mean and don't have a whole bunch of random applications running this is something to kind of be worried about now the problem is that windows 2000's netstat lacks a feature that was added in xp which is very useful in xp there are additional commands. There's a B command line option, which will show you the name of the process which has opened the port, which would immediately right. allow you to determine what it was in your machine that had, that had done this. The concern is that something may have gotten in there. And it set up shop. I mean, this is what a Trojan does, is is traditionally they would open a listening port and wait for someone to come by and connect to them, you know, discovering that they were installed on that machine. So I don't want to be alarmist, um, but this is certainly something that says that zero 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 is essentially wild card. It's like star dot star, you know, like star, 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 star. For example, when I do a netstat on my XP machine um i'll see a whole bunch of things that are 127.0.0.1 that's a sort of a, a special reserved network block the whole 127 block is but 127.0.0.1 that, that that's sort of shorthand for this machine so what that says is that something has opened a a port for the, on the local machine that is it's listening for other things on this machine that want to use the networking system to talk to each other and this is something that unix machines have done since day one and and it, it's a practice that has become very commonplace even on 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 the windows side so those are not something to worry about those are for example, I saw that Firefox has opened such ports. IE has opened such ports. Many other things that I've got running have said have said like, uh, okay, we're gonna we're gonna use my system's own networking system to talk among these processes. But that but the fact that it's 127.0.0.1 means that that port will not accept incoming connections from other IP addresses. But this 0.0.0.0 will. It's basically saying, I'm open for business, I'll accept uh, incoming uh, data from anybody. Now, having said that, if this machine is behind a NAT router, as we know, that provides incoming protection. So that won't be accessible from the outside. And hopefully, if you're running a server you are absolutely behind a firewall. And rather than in the old days where you would block things that you knew were bad, the only way to configure a firewall these days is to specifically open incoming ports that you know you want. So, for example, he probably has 80 open for allowing web traffic, um, maybe port 443 if he's also allowing SSL, secure connections to, to a web server. I don't know what kind of services he's serving on this Windows 2000 machine but my my point is that if e- even if this were something bad that had like snuck itself up into the top of of the the port space and was hoping to receive you know word from mission control somewhere out on the internet there's nothing going to get into that port because certainly um any sane configuration today will have blocked that so 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 part of the good news is Even if this were something bad, there's not anything it's able to do. But you do, I would say, this is suspicious enough that you ought to go about figuring out what it is. Now, there are some free utilities available for Windows 2000 that do this kind of port mapping. In fact, um, this is one of the features that one of the Sysinternals apps offered auto runs rec- auto runs
0: no yeah. auto runs is things oh, that start uh, up
1: a system the process uh,
0: program what's it called
1: Uh no it was a networking based tool okay. but one of the things that 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 um um uh, current, Rusinovich- por- current ports is that it uh, uh, i'll look it up while names. you talk you talk i'll look anyway there <laughs> is something that the sys internals guys i know that mark rasinovich added that feature that would that would map open ports back to the processes. It turns out there was no solid way to do it under Windows 2000, so it took lots of reverse engineering and and system hacking in order to do that. But that's, of course, what Mark Rusinovich was known for, and that's how he acquired his rep and ultimately why Microsoft acquired him. So um, anyway, it's – I don't know the name of it, but it's easy to find. Just – uh, I don't know, know
0: how to... It's it's if you Google Sys Internals, uh, you'll you'll go right to the site. I'm just trying to. There's some process tools. There's Proc Explorer, uh, PS Tools, PS File. See what files are open remotely. TCP View is that it? There you go.
1: That's it. TCP View.
0: Active Socket Command Line Viewer. Oh, that's cool. Look at that. So that tells you what what sockets are open, what's going on. That's very. It's cool.
1: very. You know, it's very much like what Microsoft added to um to XP and Vista. And I'm sure that Windows 2003 has it, too, because, of course, Windows 2003 is really just XP, you know, moved forward further. So I'm sure that that's a feature that they added to their stack. But Windows 2000 doesn't have it. So you need to use a tool like like TCP view in order to do that. Right.
0: 94 kilobytes, too, in the true Steve Gibson Uh, uh, style. uh, There we go. (laughs) Nice. Mark's good. Mark's real good. T.O. Galloway in Prince Frederick, Maryland, wonders who's watching I just finished listening to episode 152 of Security Now. Yeah, I'm behind. Not that bad. But not far. Not far. You'll catch up. And I got to thinking about the guy in South Africa that had the router admin sign-in that was open on port 80 of his
1: router. Oh, yeah. We talked about that. And by the way, I never mentioned this, but other people have that too. So our asking people to use Shields Up to check to make sure that port 80 was closed, a lot of people discovered that they've got bad UI in their routers. That's terrible. Yeah.
0: T.O. says, I have a couple of network security cameras that monitor my home. I travel a lot. It's nice to monitor what's going on while I'm gone, but these cameras use port 80 to stream the video out. By opening port 80 on the router, am I exposing my router's admin remote sign-in or anything else on my computer to the possibility of having it hacked? Could I use some other oddball port, say something like 41 or 41,587, to stream the video out through and get the router's sign-in still hidden? How high up do the port numbers go that are commonly used? Uh, thanks to both of you and Leo for the valuable information you provide. It's necessary. And thanks to spinright For SpinRight. it saved my bacon more than once. P.S. to Leo. To kill two birds with one email on a recent episode of The Tech Guy, you made some recommendations for network cameras. The ones I use are for from 4XEM. Oh, good. Their quality, I think, equals or exceeds access. And the software they provide for free downwear, download is uh, excellent. Just for future reference. I will check those out. Thank you, Tio. Or X-E-M. So okay. uh, what? So port 80 is open because those little cameras are really web
1: servers. They are, they are web servers. However, okay, here's what's happening. Um, in order for him to be connecting through his router on port 80, he had to have set up port forwarding on his router so that any incoming connection requests from his browser when he's out wandering around somewhere would be forwarded through his router and either go to directly to his webcam hardware if the cams themselves are network enabled or he's forwarding it to a computer where he's got a bunch of these webcams you know hooked into USB ports on his computer and running the server software on his on on a PC behind the router so there's two issues first of all he's safe from his router's admin because by, by forwarding port 80 to something, to hardware, either his webcam hardware or to the PC, it's not having a chance to touch his router. So that problem he need not concern himself with. And in fact, the solution that, that we suggested for people who find that their administrative um, interface on their router is open to the world is to forward port 80 to the twilight zone. Send ah. it off to some IP behind the router, you know, one nine two dot one six eight dot zero dot two 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 or something. Send it to nowhere, and that ends up just essentially stealthing that port. So the so that, that that's a nice workaround for people who discovered that their routers are not properly blocking incoming connection requests to the router on port eighty. However, it's worth also noting that you know he he mentioned this 4XEM company, and likes their software. The vulnerability is that maybe their software has a problem. And so basically you're running a web server, which is listening for connection requests on port 80. Um, It's dicey. I'm not saying, you know, it's, it's, you know, to be overly concerned, but you are, you're trusting a service which you are exposing to the Internet. And, you know, the, the universal rule is, you know, hackers will find vulnerabilities in exposed services. It's that, happened- that's that's or- true anywhere.
0: Anytime you're running a, yeah. a service of any kind, you're relying completely on whether that service is safe. And look at this bind service that we were just talking about, the DNS problem. Uh, right. A lot of people run their own DNS servers. Well, when you're running a server, you have to trust the server software. And if there's a
1: problem, you're at risk. Yeah, and so so the advantage of sticking with like you know IIS, uh, although bully me it had its problems, in
0: its, <laughs> but it's been in banged the, on anyway. In
1: the heyday, yeah. yes, yeah, or or a a big name, you know, well, or or like you know um, uh, Apache, for example, that has just had you know the, all the dust beaten out of it. The advantage of of one of those mainline servers is you get all the benefit of the pounding on that it's had. It's trivial to write a web server. And so the concern is that they hired some random programmer off the street who was whose job was to get this thing working, you know, in the afternoon because they're going to ship it tomorrow. <laughs> now we're and not it, saying this is the case. It's just the no, risk. I, exactly. And and but it's always the risk when you're dealing with, you know, a any service that hasn't had the benefit of being seriously pounded on. And, right. I mean, look at the troubles that, you know, real servers have. And imagine the challenge of just, you know, someone writing one in the afternoon and saying, oh, <laughs> look, you can now, see yourself wherever you are.
0: Now, Mark Thompson has written a little web server, but I
1: trust Mark. He's going to don't. He, you don't? No. I mean, he would never do anything malicious, but it is... Just you might make so, a mistake, yeah. It is so difficult right. to, to you, know, you have to, I mean, every literally every line of code you write has to be written with security in mind. I mean, you really have to be challenging yourself step by step. And frankly, that's just not most people's orientation. If you're in the security business, if, you, if that's where you live, that's how you think. Right. I mean, when I'm doing stuff for my site, that's all I'm thinking about. So everything. what's the
0: safest thing for him to do?
1: Uh OK, what I would do if this were me, if I had to run unknown software that is a wh- wh- whose, whose fundamental security I couldn't vouch for, I would give it its own machine. I would I would give it its own computer, not have it like talking to my main desktop. And and then I would isolate it. How, you know, to like t- to the best degree possible, for example, maybe route it through, put it through its put it behind its own router and, and map that port through so that it basically it's in jail. If any, so the computer if, is, is essentially as isolated from the rest of your network as possible so that if something, if there was a security problem there and somebody did, you know, ex, uh, exploit a buffer overrun in order to install code, the code couldn't do anything. It would be sitting there going, well, okay, what kind of a network is this? There's nobody here. You know, there's nothing else on the machine, no valuable information on that machine and no exposure of the rest of the network from that machine.
0: Well, I I guess uh, it's something for us all to be aware of because uh, more and more we're using these kinds of cameras and little devices on our system.
1: Oh, just wait till you plug your dishwasher or I your, know your, exactly your into the network.
0: We talk about that all the time. The kid, the refrigerator that calls home. You know, I'm yep. out of milk. Well, that's a server. Yep. Oh boy. <laughs> oh boy. All right, moving along to, uh, let's see, our next question is from Henry Coccozzoli in Troy, Michigan. He wants to make sure he doesn't have a Trojan. If you live in Troy, you should have a Trojan. <laughs> I'm
1: glad you caught that, Leo. <laughs> I, I, was, I was chuckling to myself. Okay, he's in Troy. As a longtime Security Now listener
0: and Spinrite customer, I wanted to try your Wizmo, which is a great little tool that Steve gives away for free at GRC.com. I was listening to Security Now 151 at the time, but my Trend Micro Office Scan 8.0 antivirus flags it as a virus. It says Pack underscore generic dot zero zero one. I thought you'd like to know. Oh, I bet he knows. <laughs> if you need more information, please let me know. Keep up the great podcast. Not the first time we've heard this, Steve.
1: No, and not the last. Unfortunately, there's a generally what happens is um, this is a, a, certainly a false positive I'm very sure Wismo has no viruses. Nobody else has reported one. So some little window of time goes by during which the the increasingly annoyingly heuristic nature of A V products will say, oh, look, here's a byte sequence uh that might be bad right. because we found a similar byte sequence um, you know, in something else that we know was bad so this is a virus okay well it's not a virus it's just the, the problem is there are now so many viruses that the there is you know a phenomenal number of signatures uh, it's like a million a year new viruses wow. or, or or a million a million total i think it is and 3 quarters of them in the last year Amazing. it just it's it's been an explosion of this and now of course the viruses are becoming more polymorphic than ever so that they're deliberately trying to hide themselves which means that in terms of this cat and mouse game the the virus the the, vir- the antivirus companies are having to like increase the the generality of the windows that, that that they use the the these these scanning windows and they're getting an increasing number of false positives so it's not just you know, my stuff, it's everybody's stuff that is increasingly being accused of, of, you know, being infected when in fact, you know, it's just not. And, and think- this will go away in another, you know, the next time Trend Micro updates their signatures, it'll go away because it, you know, it never was the case. Right.
0: This, But I think you're right. I think we're going to see more and more of this. Viruses use two techniques to find, or antiviruses use two techniques to find viruses the signature technique where they're just dumb, they're just searching for a matching string that occurred in the virus, that can cause false positives. That seems less likely. But you mentioned heuristics, and that's where they try to be a little smarter and say, is this virus-like activity or is this string kind of like the
1: other string? Well, yeah, they they try to be more general right. because for whatever reason, a, a a match doesn't work. Now, my software in the past has had some false positives even in signature matching because because I'm I've been in the anti-malware business because I've, for example, been like you know in. Uh, I think it was like um, there was something I did with um, the RPC server where I was shutting that down. Well, I had code that was that it, it was working in a similar fashion right. to what the virus was doing, although I was doing it for benign and beneficial reasons, whereas the virus was doing it for malicious reason. There actually was a valid signature match because we were sort of in the same area of the sandbox, right. essentially. So, right. you know, and, you know, those problems went away, too. People, basically, people will report those to the, to the virus ma- makers, and they'll go, oops, sorry, and then they'll, like, tweak their signatures so to, like, narrow that or, or, or specifically put in a special case saying, okay, we know Steve's stuff is, you know, not malicious, so we're going to make sure, you know, we, we don't false positive on this.
0: Well, uh, anyway, nothing to worry about, I guess, is the point. No. Yep. I guess you can kind of tell from the generic nature of the, of the virus. It's I was going to say that. <laughs> you know, exactly. It clearly doesn't see a virus. It's just.
1: Even he has it in the name, PAC underscore generic. generic. Dot 001.
0: That's basically like, saying, I don't know what it is, but it could be a vi- It looks a little virus like. Oh, I don't know what's going on. <laughs> Danny Richardson in uh, Fremont, California wonders about whitelisting. Hi, Steve. I saw an article on CNET. Thought it might make for an interesting discussion on security now. Briefly, it's a discussion on the future of antivirus software.
1: Well, what do you know?
0: Well, there you go. And how some companies are moving from a blacklist to a whitelist model. What do you think?
1: Love the show. What does that mean? It's, it's interesting. Well, what's happening is that tradition, this is, this is the virus companies ultimate reaction to the fact that they're beginning to realize this is getting out of control that is their existing model has always been find the badware now they're beginning to think okay that's not working any longer because there's so much badware there's so there there are so many tricks that the malware authors are performing that we're having a hard time even with everything we're doing, separating the malware from the goodware. So now they're saying, okay, and this is especially true in a corporate environment, we're going to flip it around. We're going to specifically whitelist software that we're going to allow to run on the machines and just assume anything not known to be good is bad. Now, This is a problem, of course, for end users, because look at all the software out there. (laughs) It's
0: pretty much everything is going to. Yeah. I mean, that'll limit what you can do very much, although I guess it might be ultimately the only way they can keep up.
1: And you can you can see you can imagine that in a corporate environment where there is there is there are inherently more restrictive policies. It makes sense. I mean, you can imagine, in fact, corporate I.T. just saying, yeah, 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 yeah. Let's let's go for whitelisting, because essentially it means Anything not whitelisted will be absolutely blocked from running. And then of course you've got to go to your IT guy with your tail between your legs and say, uh, why can't I run, you know, the Martha's Vineyard mapping application. <laughs>
0: what we and never that's... heard of that. You can't run it. Exactly. <laughs> it's too small. We're not right. gonna support
1: that. Yeah, that's too bad. Yeah. So I do see this happening and uh it's gonna be rough for end users. I don't I don't think that model works in end user cases. I think You know, I know that lots of end users feel better having something there, sifting through their data. And every so often, I mean, if nothing else, a false positive or two lets them know their viruses, their antivirus scanner is awake and paying attention.
0: (laughs) It did something. Yay.
1: Hey, good. Maybe it'll find the bad stuff next time.
0: (laughs) Bill Barnes in Charlotte, North Carolina, worries about his provider's DNS service. So. What do I do if the report at doxpara.com tells me I'm vulnerable? Remember, we talked last week about Dan Kaminsky's discovery that many DNS servers were flawed, and he set up a site, D-O-X-P-A-R-A.com, to test your DNS. If uh, He says, I manage several clients with different ISPs, and a number of them are not yet patched. For most of them, Kaminsky's page displays a different DNS that is configured in my router or was given to me by the ISP. I don't have any leverage with the ISP and certainly don't want to make a public show of the fact that they're putting me at risk. At least my Earthlink DNS did get patched a couple of days after the first time I checked. I have to say, we, I did it as an experiment on the air. I gave people the uh, URL of docspara.com. This is when the f- uh, flaw was first announced about a week and a half ago. And um, asked them to come into the chat room and tell me. And a surprisingly large number of uh, ISPs were not patched at the time.
1: Yeah, it's going to be interesting to watch this. Um, I noted that when I when I went back uh, and looked just this morning, uh, Dan had put in a don't panic message. Uh, <laughs> I think what happened was his little DNS tester freaked out people because he was saying, yeah, you're vulnerable. And they're like, ah, what is it? You know, now what? And so it's like, okay, calm down. It literally, it says you know something like that. Uh, words to that effect. It says, I'm sitting there, I, I had it brought up here. He says, um, "Do not be concerned at this time. IT administrators have only recently been apprised of this issue and should have some time to safely evaluate and deploy a fix." So, and and I will tell our listeners the same thing. This is, even at its worst, it is a highly targeted attack, and it's not like you know suddenly all of the all of DNS net wide is going to be poisoned. The idea is that it's it's possible to confuse a DNS server so that while uh, its its cached data is non-expired, it's routing your browser to a bad server. Now that's not a good thing. That's why everybody in the industry is patching this. Um, but it does mean that it, it's it's sort of a a focused attack. Now, what you can imagine the bad guys doing. However, because I've been giving this some thought uh, in preparation, all, especially for next week's podcast, where we're going to really go into this and get our propellers wound up, um, is that it is very easy to discover servers that are not patched. So, as ISPs across the net get their servers fixed, that that will call that will bring a a heightened focus upon those ISPs that haven't. Gotten their server, their DNS servers patched, right? And you can expect, you know, a higher incidence of games be played against those servers. So, um, anyway, we'll be going into this in detail next week. Um, my advice for people who are truly concerned—I mean, I, I haven't done anything at my end. On the other hand, I'm running a a a, resolve, a fully resolving server myself, so I'm not dependent upon anyone like any ISP's DNS server. Um, You can certainly, however, as we said when we brought this up last week, is just aim your DNS at the open DNS servers, which have always been well-designed and are spoof-proof as much as is possible.
0: Yeah, they do a good job. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Nick Cody in Ipswich, that's in the UK, wonders why Zone Alarm broke GRC. Darn them. Hi, Steve. I'm a long-time listener to Security Now, and I think I may have identified a slight problem for zone alarm users like me trying to access your site, grc.com. I needed one of your fabulous passwords today, so I used IE7 to browse to www.grc.com. It looked like the site was loading, and then it stalled before ever getting to the main page. I tried it a couple of times, and the same thing happened. It could only get so far and never showed your main front page. So I tried Firefox 3. Same thing. Always ended up hanging while trying to bring in something from grctech.com. I wondered if it could be Zone Alarm throwing a spanner in the works. So I looked at my privacy settings in ZA. He's using version 7. Ad blocking was turned off, so it couldn't be that. But cookie control was set halfway up at medium. I turned cookie control all the way off, cleared my cache, restarted Firefox 3, tried again, and bingo, your site loaded straight away. I closed Firefox 3, cleared the cache, and used IE7 to navigate to GRC again, right away, no problems. I've repeated the experiment a few times using both browsers. There's no doubt I can't reach GRC.com when Zone Alarm's cookie control is set to medium. And this is where my concern lies, because according to the settings, medium blocks third party cookies and removes private header information, and you can't reach GRC.com unless these privacy features are disabled. Err, what's going on? Surely there are no third-party cookies at GRC.com. A quick mention of this issue might help those of us who use Zone Alarm and want to look at your site all the best. What's going on? (sighs) (laughs) I I have a feeling because that
1: GRCTech.com, that would be a third-party site, wouldn't it? Exactly. Um, For the last two years, since I first first deployed my third-party cookie testing technology, my One of my servers, grctech.com, has deliberately been offering browsers cookies from non-grc.com. This is part of the system. I am just on the verge of releasing publicly to notify people when their browsers have third-party cookies enabled. There's a very cool page, Leo. If you, if you take a look at it right now, go to grc.com slash cookies slash stats dot htm. You'll get a kick out of the there's a 3D bar chart there. Uh grc.com slash cookies IES slash stats dot com. This is based on uh incoming stuff on your site? This is yes this is the history of our of all of the GRC visitors in the last week. Um and you and it shows a by browser profile of which users, are by by browser, who's got third party cookies disabled? And it really shows the effect of Safari's disabling third party cookies by default. It's alone in the industry in doing so. It also shows that our Linux visitors, who are using non, who are using Gecko browsers rather than ver- Firefox uh, two or three for Windows, they're also very security and, and privacy. Opera. Yes, Opera has a lot of third party cookies disabled. Very cool stuff there. So, anyway. I'm surprised
0: um, that 2% 2 of uh, Safari users have turned on third-party cookies. (laughs) I
1: I know. I don't know what that means. I think that's exactly what's happened is they don't understand the the implications of doing so. Um, But, uh, anyway, so um, what happened with, and I don't understand what Zone Alarm is doing. I mean, it seems onerous to entirely block a site. Which just block is, the
0: cookie. You don't have to block the site.
1: Exactly. It just, It just. I mean, literally, no one can get to GRC.com after upgrading to Zone Alarm 7. It's been a serious problem. And it's like, okay, I'm really glad well, I helped Zone Alarm out in the old days. You mean that's because the default setting? Apparently, because it's zapping everybody. Oh, that's terrible. You know, of all the days of of Zone Alarm 2.6, which is the last one I ever used and liked, you know, those are long gone, and Zone Alarm has become, you know, a kitchen sink product that I, you know, I'm not loading it. But okay. I, I'm going to have to run a copy to figure out what's going on one of these days. Apparently, it's also doing a script page injection, which is another annoying thing. It's modifying the pages that you download. I guess since it's your software, though, and not some third-party gunk at the ISP, you know, that's a very different but I'd like to know what it is that it's in, you know installing into my uh what my browser pages wow that's that's pretty serious it, stuff it's got pretty heavy duty yeah, yeah. it's yeah. invasive just uh, so, yeah. yeah yeah okay
0: <laughs> okay uh Samir tawar in London England di- by the way you could presumably say uh instead of disabling the 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 uh the you know not use use the medium setting but say Site by site. Okay, allow third-party cookies here, right? I presume that you could set it.
1: uh, Well, yes. Apparently, they're... I mean, I know that Zone Alarm is aware of this because some users have called them, and I've seen reports from them saying that, you know, like them saying that they like whitelist GRC and GRC tech. Apparently, it doesn't work. Oh. I know. I don't know what's (laughs) going on. Oh.
0: (sighs) Samir Talwar in London, England does need third-party cookies. Hi, Steve. There's a reason for third-party cookies. I'm not recommending that you enable them by default. Just enable them one by one as you need them. That's in fact what I do. I have uh, two set up. Remember the Milk.com. I use that. It's a very good to-do list manager. And yep. Discuss.com. I also use this. This is uh, the commenting system I use on my blog, uh, leoville.com. So some here must be, must be uh, reading my mind. Both of these hook themselves into other sites making third-party cookies necessary. In the case of Remember the Milk, it has an iGoogle widget and a plugin for Google Calendar, and Discus loads itself into a lot of different blogs. It's true, uh, although I haven't noticed that. Oh, that's interesting. You would have a cookie from Discus when you visit my blog. That's where the comments live. Again, not saying they're definitely a good thing, but they're not always bad either. Oh, and one more thing. Why don't browsers treat JavaScript loaded from external sites as third-party code, thus making any cookie access appear to be from that site? Oh, that's an interesting question.
1: Yeah, that, that was a great point too. Okay, so um it is certainly the case that with web what are we up to now? 7.9 or something? We're we're beyond web 2.0, right? I think so, somewhere.
0: <laughs> somewhere out there. <laughs>
1: um there are beginning to be valid uses for third-party cookies. Um the, the the so-called mashups where where you know you you're running somebody else's site's code in like an iframe or in some sort of a window in some other site or like Remember the Milk, it makes sense, and and so so wholesale disabling of third party cookies, I think, still probably works for most people. But if there are something like exactly like uh, S- S- Samir suggests, like Remember the Milk.com, where where there's a reason for You know you're 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 cookie and privacy conscious. You in general you want to deny third-party cookies. Most browsers allow you to whitelist cookies by site and allow rememberthemilk.com and and whatever sites, you know whatever sites you know you need third parties enabled. Normally you don't because you only need to exchange cookies with a site you're currently visiting, not sites you're not visiting. And that's of course what we mean when we say third party. And we'll be getting into all this in. Really interesting, painful detail uh, not, not, not long from now. But anyway, so I did want to acknowledge the fact that not all third-party cookies are bad, and sometimes they really do have a use. Yeah.
0: In fact, uh, I
1: use them, apparently. <laughs> I wasn't even aware of it. <laughs>
0: Michael Tiller in Canton, Michigan, loves his YubiKey, but, Steve, he says, I got a YubiKey to play with. I agree, the concept's quite nifty, but I think there is one thing that makes it impractical. And that is the fact that it uses a symmetric encryption scheme. The key issue here, pardon the pun, is that for somebody to be able to verify your identity, they must implicitly have the ability to steal. In other words, they'd be able to fake your credentials. It seems to me that the killer version of this device is one with asymmetric encryption. That way I could give out a public credential then use my YubiKey to prove using a private credential that I am the same person. This issue came up in the YubiKey forum and it seems like the summary here is that asymmetric encryption would require more sophisticated read more expensive hardware and that it would require far more information to be communicated in order to be practical. We've talked I a little com- bit about this before, right?
1: Yeah, I completely agree with Michael. Um so what he's saying is that that and this is I mean this is an issue with the YubiKey. We talked about it in, in with this notion of acquiring the the private the secret Symmetric key from YubiKey. You could write to them and say, "I want my YubiKey's secret code because I want to provide it to somebody else to authenticate. I want to be able to authenticate it myself, or or whatever." In the process of doing so, and in, in like liberating it from them, then you're responsible for it, and anybody else who got it could fake your credential. So, so the problem is. Asymmetric encryption is not just a little bit more time-consuming or difficult or number-crunchy intensive. I mean, it is—it is so much more than symmetric key as to be in an entirely another order of magnitude. I mean, there are there are um, SSL accelerator hardware add-ons for servers that offload that. SSL setup process because there is such a burden. Now I've talked about how it's much less today than it used to be because CPUs are so much more powerful. I mean, you know, a lot of the the connections to GRC are SSL. I force a an SSL connection to anyone starting to use Shields Up because I want to avoid ISP transparent proxies that we've dis- discussed before in order to get a direct connection to the user's machine so I can obtain their actual IP address. But, um, you know, and so, and I, I'm i not using any hardware acceleration and and that's, you know, it's fast enough. But the point is that there's a, you know, a little tiny little processor on on the YubiKey that is easily able to do um, you know, standard symmetric Rijndael AES encryption. Rijndael was designed, in fact, with hardware implementation in mind. It was designed so it's very simple to implement in hardware or in a little, you know, firmware-programmed um, chip of some kind, which is what I presume is in the YubiKey. But but to do full symmetric and uh, asymmetric, you know, public key style encryption is Dramatically more compute intensive, and when you really think about it, it's it's not exactly clear how that would work because you would you probably need bidirectional communication. I haven't sat down and thought this all the way through, but the YubiKey, one of the things that's so cool about it is it just pretends to be a keyboard. You don't need to give it something and have it encrypted in order to prove that that it is what it is. It it maintains its own internal state. And merely increments that um, in order to well I guess I guess it could it could uh, as I think about it it could it could simply use its private key to encrypt that state and send that out. It would be a lot larger it would be the length of the modulus of the public key, um, so that would be a longer string to type um, and then you ought to be able to use the public key in order to to decrypt what it encrypted, um, of course that would give you access to the 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 encrypted contents, which which might be a problem. Anyway, um, it, <laughs> it would work. It is. It's, it's not. It's
0: not a simple thing.
1: It's not a simple thing, but more than anything, it, it you know you would you would press the button and probably have to come back tomorrow in order to to get <laughs> and, your result and, and,
0: from it. And that's why PGP uses a symmetric key. Initially, doesn't it? Then to
1: well, it's why any any of these systems SSL uses symmetric keys. Yeah, well, any of these systems do not encrypt the bulk payload. Right. What they do is they generate a random number, a big random number. That's the symmetric key. Then that's the only thing they encrypt using the asymmetric encryption. Is they they encrypt the symmetric key. That's what they send, and then using the other side of the the asymmetric cipher, they decrypt with the other um, half of the asymmetric key. That gives them the symmetric key, and then you decrypt the whole bulk payload. And now we're all confused.
0: What he said. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Jez Goldstone in Manchester, UK, has been thinking about the form browser dance talked about it extensively last week and a couple of weeks ago. Steve, I really don't want to give these nasty guys any ideas, but your recent discussions about form have centered around how they bounce a user's a browser around to set a cookie for profile purposes. Since they can see the IP address of any request, the ISP can simply tell them which unique subscriber has that IP address at any given time they can then associate the current IP address with their unique reference and know who's sending the request and what profile to use they can then inject a cookie into the requested page between the user sending the request and it being passed on to the required destination they could then pick it up at their at using their advertising service on a third party site they providing advertising that they're providing advertising for in your example cnet.com there would be no way to take anti-form measures apart from using Tor or JAP or some other SSL anonymizing service. I know that this approach does not work for multiple users behind a common NAT router, but then neither does the cookie-based approach when multiple users share the same login account, for instance, within a, in a household. Did I miss anything? So he's saying the ISP says match this Internet address to this unique subscriber, associate that address with the cookie reference, and then you'll know who's sending the request, what
1: profile to use, and then inject the cookie. It's complicated. Does it work? Um, Well, it works, but the thing he missed, if you can put it that way, is that requires clear collusion between the third party and the ISP. In
0: every case, the ISP is saying, we're not revealing personal information.
1: Yes, and and even, even so... Everyone is up in arms about form and Nebuad and their ilk of these third parties where they, I mean, and I have to say, I mean, the form folks, I can't really say that one way or the other about, about the Nebuad people, but certainly the form folks, because I've, I've gone through their technology, they go to extreme measures to anonymize the data. You know, that's not satisfying people. They 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 still don't like the idea that you know they're being profiled even in that fashion but at least you know i mean form can can argue look we we really have a hands off approach we're sure we're we're sniffing and modifying the isp's data stream but we're doing it in a completely hands off fashion we we're getting no account information from the isp and we are completely independent of ip so, uh, so I think you know, if somebody actually had would know could tap into the ISP's database and say who's currently the customer on this IP, oh boy, I mean that, well, they, yeah. you know, did you just go down in flames?
0: Right. So in other words, they've thought of this. They know they can do this. They're just, they
1: just they, they love to be able to do that, but they dare not. They and dare even, not. Even so, they're in you know deep doo doo. Yeah, exactly.
0: Hey, before we uh, get to our uh, next uh, questions which uh, are Steve's award, award-winning questions. What are they? You gave him <laughs> a funny title. The, uh, the sad and disturbing truth of the week and the creative writing award of the week. Before we get to those, <laughs> let's take a pause, let's take a break and mention our great sponsors, Audible.com. This show is made possible by Audible.com. They're the folks who do those great audio books that I'm always raving about. I know you've heard of them. A-U-D-I-B-L-E dot com. I'll tell you, the reason I... When I fell in love with Audible was when I had that long commute into San Francisco to do Tech TV. An hour to an hour and a half each way, sometimes four hours in the car in a day, and boy, I didn't mind because I had great reading material. I was listening to Audible books, and I got through so many books. Hundreds and hundreds of wonderful memories I'll have. I learned, I laughed, I cried, and that's why I love Audible. 50,000 titles in every genre, and the best thing is... You find a book you like, you click on it, you download it, you got it. it. Just takes a few seconds. That's how cool it is. Audible wants to give you a chance to try audiobooks if you've never tried them before. Right now Audible is doing something a little bit different. They're giving away a book to new and existing members. It's called it's free, but just for the next couple of days. It's called The Disappeared Retrieval Artist Book 1 by Christine Catherine Rush. It's the first book of a Retrieval Artist series of sci-fi. Uh, She's written a lot of great books. I asked around. I haven't read any of her stuff, and people said universally, oh, you're going to love it. The Disappeared Retrieval Artist, book one. So here's all you do. You go to audible.com slash the disappeared, and you can download it for free. Now, if you'd like to get an Audible account, you can also get a free book. This is in addition to that by going to audiblepodcast.com slash security now and get a credit for a free book. There's so many great titles. If it plays on almost every device out there, soon to the Zune, by the way. But right now to all the iPods, of course, the Kindle, the Zens, many, many uh, GPS devices. Two people who put them on their Nuvi's or their Tom Toms. Audible.com. Love them. Audiblepodcast.com slash security now for the standard offer, a free book of any book just by joining Audible.com. And if you want to give them a try because you've never tried them before and you think, let me see if I like audiobooks, go to Audible.com slash The Disappeared. You'll love it. We thank Audible so much for their support of security now. All right, Steve Areno, are you ready, my friend? The final two. The final two questions. And they're goodens. Steve's given them special awards. Awards of special merit. First, Pat Kugel in London, Ontario, with the sad and disturbing truth of the week. Hi, Steve. I've been listening to the podcast over the past several weeks and thought I'd pass along... A little information from Canada. One of the two primary service providers in Canada is Bell Canada. They provide a PPPOE-based carrier service. Notice, this is not an ISP service. That would be Simpatico for a large number of smaller ISPs. So they're, they're basically the carrier, and then, then there's an ISP on top of it. They're being sued by a Quebec organization, in addition to being audited by the CRTC, that's the Canadian FCC, Due to their installation of DPI, Deep Packet Inspection Servers, their intent to deep scan all PPPOE packets so they could target advertising and block websites they don't agree with. Under CRTC regulations, this is illegal as the PPPOE packets are considered private and as a carrier, Bell Canada does not have the legal right to open the contained packet. They're only allowed to examine the PPPOE wrapper for a destination. I've been reading and hearing that this kind of thing is happening more and more by ISPs and by carriers. If memory serves me, wasn't Comcast just given a warning by the FCC for the same thing? As a netizen, I'm concerned that we're slowly losing the net neutrality war. Are we sacrificing too much in the name of profits and advertising, or
1: am I just being paranoid? That is the sad and disturbing (laughs) truth of the week. They're all doing it. I know it's, uh, it is really becoming distressing. Um, I mean, the, uh, I think that Pat expressed this perfectly. And and that is that, that, you know, a a common carrier is, you know, they have obligations under the law. They're, They're certainly not able to, to spy on the data that they're passing and essentially censor it based on its contents it'd be I mean, like listening
0: to your phone calls and saying oh no you can't call that person
1: yeah we don't like what you said no no no. sorry no and, and unfortunately you know the, the the technology is here this deep packet inspection basically you know dpi it was nice when it just meant dots per inch instead of <laughs> deep packet inspection unfortunately i'm afraid the dpi is gonna is ending up you know being renamed because unfortunately as the, as the the cost of doing this has come down as processing power has gone up and and networking has matured. It becomes you know virtually um, inexpensive for this kind you know for for carriers to to examine the tr- deeply examine the, the traffic that they're carrying. And uh, you know I mean this is like sort of the next level of problem from from the Form and Nebuad type companies. You know here. Bell Canada themselves are doing this.
0: It actually seems to happen a lot in Canada. In fact, Sandvine, which is the service that Comcast uses for DPI as a Canadian company, I think from that area, I think from London, Ontario, okay. as a matter of fact. Yeah. Uh, Jake, I put that in quotes, writing from sometime in the future, wins the Creative Writing Award of the Week. Subject, a big thank you from the future. Dear Steve and Leo, since back in 2003, I've been working on a time machine for 10 years. I was so buried in my work that I didn't pay much attention to issues like hard drive health until recently. With the current state of electronic security in 2013, I came upon security now, which is really now security then. But, and I listened to it for the nostalgia of the good old days when security was comprehensible. One day, my computer came to a halt. With all of my data and designs at risk, I immediately bought a copy of Spinrite 7. And in hours, I had recovered my data. By the way, version 7 makes great toast. <laughs> Spinrite allowed me to complete my time machine, so I took my first trip back to 2008 just to thank you. Keep up the good work. Your only hope, Obi-Wan Kenobi. Best regards, Jake. Please, P.S., visit us in 2013 for a demo of my perpetual motion machine, but don't count on free energy. That's a pipe dream. Very cute. Very cute.
1: <laughs> so I got a kick out of that. I he's love pretty, that. You know, ever, ever since 2003, for the last 10 years, he's been working on his time machine. And, uh, of course, we do, not, we do not have Spinrite 7 yet, folks. We're selling Spinrite 6. <laughs> You're going to get emails well, now, people saying, where's Spinrite 7? I, I, don't, I want to." know. It. What Jay, Jake talked about it. Well, okay, it's Jake is from 2013, and he traveled five years back in time yes. to 2008. So, you know, we just want to let you know, Spinrite 7 apparently makes great toast. I I didn't have that on my list of things to add. Now you do. Don't have that at my my updates, but, you know, I'm not arguing with Jake. Apparently he knows more about Spinrite 7 than I do at this point. Toast is good stuff. There you go.
0: Oh, Steve, it's been fun. It's been a great 12 questions as always. How can people send you questions or suggestions?
1: grc.com/slash-feedback. Okay, and thanks to you, Leo. They add. They need add no extension to the end of that. <laughs> no just, <dot> .htm. <laughs> and no, no ww. <laughs> on the front. Just grc.com/slash-feedback. Um, four hundred and thirty-five people sent me, uh, their questions and wow. comments and notes and things in the last two weeks. Wow. So I really appreciate those. I just have such fun plowing through them and, and finding 12 to share with our listeners. So yes. by all means, keep them coming. Thank you for doing that. And, and by
0: the way, if you want to go to GRC.com for other reasons, there's lots there. Wizmo coming too. coming, too. Some, something neat Steve's working on, but Shields Up is there. And, of course, don't forget Spinrite, the world's finest disc maintenance and recovery utility. It's all at GRC.com along with 16 kilobit versions of the show, transcripts, show notes. It's all there grc.com steve thanks a lot that was a a great batch of questions
1: some fascinating stuff next week what's on the agenda another great 90 minutes spent with you leo yes sir next week i will say again to our listeners who do have propeller head beanie caps uh this is going to be a one of our great uh techie episodes we're going to delve into in detail and this is, this. I mean, again, this every, everybody's going to understand this. I promise you, Any, no matter how uh, much of a neophyte our listeners consider themselves, they're going to understand how DNS protocol works wow. at, at the level required to spoof your own ISP server if they haven't patched by that time. Okay, strap on no. your
0: pseudo-random number generators and... Head into the future. We'll be back in a week. <laughs>
1: Strap on your pseudo-random number generator. That's right. Put that and right use, on. Make a few passwords while
0: you're at it. Steve, we'll talk again next Thursday on Security Now.
1: Security Now.